0: Welcome to the Ad Nauseum
1: Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle.
0: Welcome, Ad Nauseam, listeners, to episode 120. My name is Dr. David Sinowi, and I am here in Vomitorium South, deep in the bunker, hermetically sealed against all deleterious influences, with my good friend and fabulous co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you this afternoon, Jeff?
1: I'm feeling good. I feel I feel safe. I feel calm and content. Sealed off down here in the bunker.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. This We've is... got our cans of uh, Campbell's soup lined up against the wall. Exactly. Right? right. Got our um, what, our instant water. Yes, sorts of things we can use in case there's some sort of a um, literary fallout that comes upon us. Exactly, right. So
1: it's kind of an apocalyptic bunker. Mm-hmm. I also like to think of it as it's close to Superman's Fortress of Solitude. Oh, too, really? Right. It's kind of. A, well, it's... that was
0: made entirely of ice. It was. Wasn't it? Yeah. How uncomfortable is right. that?
1: I mean, you go, you know, where everybody wants to go to get away from it all—the Arctic, right? Yes.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Your, your property would be always diminishing if I'm not mistaken. It would
1: be a bad investment. There'd be
0: I melt. Would it would, right?
1: Yes, exactly.
0: My investments are melting rapidly. Right.
1: But I do like to think of the bunker as kind of half survivalist. Yes. Um uh extreme survivalist. You mean our bunker. Uh, our bunker, uh, and half Fortress of Solitude. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, mm-hmm. but so yeah, with the soup cans, we also have, you know, uh connections with um, uh, Jor-El from the planet
0: Krypton. Oh, really? Um,
1: advising, what? Advising us on the... Uh, did, did you ever see the Superman movie? Yes,
0: I've seen, I think, all of them, unfortunately. Really? But what, what does soup have to do with Jor-El?
1: Well, wait, on one side, you have the soup. Okay. And on the other side, you have kind of the, the 1978 uh, video screen where Jor-El can mm. give you advice from beyond the grave. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's what I'm talking Speaking
0: about. Speaking of the 1970s... Yes? This is uh, possibly the best bunker. What? It could be the arch bunker.
1: <laughs> Nicely done. I saw. I saw what you did. Yeah. I knew it was coming. I, yeah, that's still, I all
0: the in the family, right? That's
1: right. Yeah. So what are we talking about today, Jeff? Well, I was counting up. You know, we started this this uh, yes. Aeneid series uh,
0: almost exactly a year ago. Uh, arithmetic, eh? Yes.
1: And this is the thirtieth uh, and final Aeneid episode. No way. Yes.
0: I don't believe either claim, either that it is the thirtieth. Yes. Because it feels like the sixty-eighth. <laughs> uh, nor that it is the final. I think we will find some way to squeeze yet another episode out of the Aeneid. Really? Beyond yes.
1: Beyond this? We're not going to yes. cover it all today?
0: I doubt it. Okay, it just seems like 30 is, such,
1: 30 is such a nice round number. That's true. And it, it makes up, uh, the Aeneid episodes make up a full quarter of the episodes we've
0: done uh, hmm. total. And what's a round number, by the way? One that's not going to have a jagged edge?
1: Yeah. Exactly. It's got that nice it's the zero. It's nice, smooth
0: on the end of Won't it. splinter your finger.
1: Right. Right, right, right. A
0: jagged, crusty O.
1: Yeah. So yeah uh, so you think this might not be the final of the I think there's sure. just
0: so much material here of an interpretive nature yeah and we have threatened threatened the audience from episode one of this interminable series yeah. that we would spend a lot of time on interpretation
1: Yes okay and well, here I think we, we are have. wasting
0: our breath All on right. Archie Bunker. Yes.
1: What are we doing? Carol we doing? O'Connor right right right, right, okay. right okay so
0: do we have a shout out?
1: Uh, I think we're another over this week right? nine nine no okay. grazie
0: yeah. So what are we going to do?
1: We're going to ask the audience for a shout out. Okay. Continue to ask it for them. So you know, There have go, to
0: be people listening. There have to be, right? And they're just too shy. They just need to step forward. Right. We want to celebrate you. That's, that's correct. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Turn the spotlight away from ourselves. <laughs> yes. And on to the humble yet uh, loyal listener. And I, we should remind them, this you don't have to have
1: like a deep, intimate connection with the classics to get right. a shout out. Right?
0: Or an interesting story. Oh, no. We, we don't a, have interesting stories. That's exactly right. So join the club. <laughs> correct. My goodness. Yeah. OK. All right, should we get into this? I think we should. Okay. Should we give a quick overview of the things that are going to be covered here in this episode? Go for it. So we have Aeneas's return to battle. Yep. Juturna, who is once again Turnus's sister. Yes. And she's a nymph, right?
1: Right, she's a she is a, um she's a goddess of sorts.
0: Correct. Yes. She disguises herself. Aeneas attacks the city. Mm-hmm. And then we have the tragic death of Amata. Amata yeah. Lavi, right? Lavinia's mama. Right. Uh takes her own life. Then finally, the combat of Aeneas and Turnus, Jupiter and Juno reach a, uh, to use the German rapprochement, mm-hmm. and then finally,
1: the death of Turnus, yes. which is the note on which the epic
0: ends. Correct. Yes. The sour note, the off note, the blue note. Right. That's where I think where a lot of our interpretive discussion will come in. I think That's so. That's where a lot
1: of the ink that has been spilled on the Aeneid has.
0: Been has spilled? Spilled
1: in that general direction.
0: That's correct. Yes. <laughs> the scholarly squids yes. spill their ink in a variety of directions. Indeed. Okay, so the opening quote. Yes. Uh, you selected this, and yet did. little did you know that mm-hmm. Carl Springer is uh, an acquaintance of mine. Oh, no way. An internet acquaintance. Is that right? Yeah, this guy is a fantastic Latinist. Is that right? Yes. Uh, Still kicking? L- oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, last I knew, um, he was down in southern Illinois. I don't remember the exact name of the institution. Okay. Uh, but I, I kind of admire this guy, and here's why. He started out in classics. He got his bona fides, or fides, actually, uh, here with such things as Virgil. And now he is uh, publishing and translating um, things from the 16th and 17th centuries. So it's kind of like my story. So he's he's kind of a rival of yours. No, no, because he's older. Okay. Uh, I don't know how much and much respected. But you guys
1: aren't stepping on each other's toes. No, like, no. Like, Who's going to be translating Beza this week not or whatever? No, Beza. Sorry,
0: I, uh, Beza. What I, is wrong with I, you? I stopped with Constantine. Okay. Right. <laughs> no, no, not a rival. Uh, someone that I, I admire and from whom I would like the opportunity to learn.
1: Okay. All right. Well, so this comes from an article of right. his entitled The Last Line of the Aeneid. And you know, speaking of you know interpretive ink being spilled on the end of, yes. of the epic, this is exactly what this is about. And so his thesis, just generally speaking, in his article is that says a lot of people call attention to how abrupt right. the Aeneid ends. Mm-hmm. And he says, well... Okay, but if you compare it, if you if you kind of really cast your interpretive net widely, I see it's not all that different hmm. than in this in this quote we see. It's not all that different than what we see in the Iliad,
0: hmm. right? Interesting. Yes, I'm eager to hear this. This is from the Classical Journal, came out in uh, May 1987. Is yes. that right?
1: Yep, that's right. Before your undergrad years. Yes, just before. Correct. Yeah. And he writes, uh, Carl writes, abrupt as the ending of the Aeneid is, however, it is important not to exaggerate its uniqueness. In point of fact, the Aeneid was not the only epic in antiquity which had no formal epilogue. The Iliad, upon which Virgil modeled the last six books of the Aeneid, also ends rather abruptly. Although Homer begins the Iliad by announcing his subject and naming his protagonist, the Wrath of Achilles, in the last lines of the epic, the poet concentrates not on Achilles, but on Hector. Hector's name comes up three times in the last 22 lines of the Iliad. Achilles is never mentioned. In the first line of the Iliad, only Achilles' name in the genitive appears. In the last line of the poem, only Hector's, also in the genitive, is mentioned. Homer also leaves the reader with a number of questions still unanswered at the end of the poem. Achilles has at last, it seems, gotten over his anger. But the reader wonders what will happen to him now. Will he continue to fight even though Hector is dead? Homer could have made the ending less abrupt by indicating to the reader in a few additional lines that Achilles had learned an important lesson about anger in the course of the events described in the epic. If the poet had really wanted to provide the work with a sense of finality, he might even have foretold to his readers the death of Achilles at the hand of Paris. As it is, however, the ending of the Iliad strikes a rather uncertain note. The g, uh, gamma epsilon, uh, particle in the final line suggests that something antithetical should follow the reader, reader feels that there is something more that could be told about Achilles and the rest of the Trojan War.
0: Hmm. What do you make of this? I think it's really uh, quite astute. I think it's quite astute, and it had not occurred to me before. It's it's brilliant, really. Um, for example, uh, will he continue to fight even though Hector's, Hector is dead? Homer could have made the ending less abrupt by indicating to the reader in a few additional lines mm-hmm. that Achilles had learned an important lesson about anger in the course of the events described in the epic. Yes. To me, that stands out because the fact that Homer does not do that makes it an immeasurably better work of literature.
1: Right. Right, there, right, right.
0: There are not tidy endings. Exactly. Did you see the old uh, Lord of the Rings films that came out in the early 2000s? Yes, I did. Yeah, oh, The three of them? Yeah. Right? One of the, um, I would say, salient criticisms of the third film, Return of the King, mm-hmm. is that it had six or seven separate epilogues. Do you remember that? I,
1: I don't. You have but...
0: all of these reunions. Uh, the, the character of Bilbo, no, Frodo, excuse me, Elijah Wood, you know, is laying in his bed, recuperating from all the terrible things of being on the slopes of Mount Doom right, or right. something like that. Yeah, yeah. If I could conjure up my Hugo weaving voice. It's right. Really good. <laughs> and he's reunited with each of his friends who come in and wish him well, and they're happy to see that's he's right. convalescing, and all the, the uh, loose ends are neatly tied up. Mm-hmm. right? Now, in one sense, that's very satisfying if you have a kind of fan approach to the literature, to the novel. Yeah. But if you approach it as something that is telling more profound truths, I would say it's less satisfying.
1: I would agree with that.
0: And the Iliad is not like that. Right. The Iliad leaves many strands untied. Of course, one of the biggest disappointments that students have when they come to the Iliad is that it's not about the fall of Troy. No. And neither is the Odyssey. It skips whatever, the horse, right, is only told in a flashback. flashback.
1: And in the Iliad, it's it's we're not even there yet, right? Correct. Yeah,
0: It's a, a brief moment in year nine. It's about 51 days in year nine. Exactly. And so I think Springer is really onto something here. Yeah. And um, given that Virgil's two purposes, in writing the Aeneid, according to the ancient commentaries, was first to rival Homer, mm-hmm. and second to praise Augustus back to his ancestors. An abrupt ending is a good rivalry of Homer.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. He's he's following his model.
1: I do, I totally agree with it. I think from that point of view, um, I really like Springer's argument. A couple of things that I would I would quibble with. Okay, is you know when he says you know the audience left wondering what Achilles is going to do next. I think that the, in Homer's time. The traditions about Achilles and, and what happens to him, I think, were probably in the water. In that, Sure. You know, it, it wasn't about suspense. It was about kind of who's telling this very sub, f, the familiar story right. in a way that's going to surprise me. For sure. But maybe the, the way he ends it Correct. is surprising. But not, we wouldn't be left, oh my gosh, what's going to be happening next? Because everybody knew what happened to Achilles.
0: True. Right. True. But within the confines of the work of art itself, <laughs> mm-hmm. right, it does... Uh, open the question why doesn't homer tie up this loose end of achilles exactly i think part of it is Achilles hasn't learned anything about the dangers of anger. No. Right? Maybe
1: Maybe in a brief he, moment with a prime in the tent.
0: Well, but he's about to kill him, right? right? He says, look, I'll give you back your son, but don't push it, old man.
1: Oh, I'm going to draw my sword. Correct. Because
0: I'm exactly. I'm still just as <laughs> angry as I was in a book one, line one. Right. So, so don't push it. He right?
1: recovers a smidgen of his humanity, but it's not this... It's,
0: oh, I, it, yeah. it's, right. It's
1: not this complete kind of come back down to earth moment.
0: Right. right. And right. characters are consistent. Yes. That, that's what I like. I don't like the the fantasy fairy tale development of character you go you know in a few books from being a monster to being a philanthropist right doesn't happen yeah so Jeff what else would you like to say about Springer um
1: I think perhaps this is an unanswerable question but um you know in terms of like what the original audience would have been familiar with the, with like, the, in terms of like, he talks about like the, the epilogue. Right. I think in Homer's day, most of the audience would have known the tradition of, you know, Achilles dying on the battlefield. Right. He knows what happened. With Aeneas, my, did, was, was Virgil's audience would have had also kind of, oh yes, we know what happens to Aeneas after this. I mean, I, I pulled, um, right. you know, I, I got some stuff here on our, on our show notes, uh, you know, from that reputable source of Wikipedia. Right. But even, you know, so there it's, um, you know, it talks about later traditions kind of pulling threads together that we kind of sort of know what happens to Aeneas afterwards, but it doesn't seem to be, have kind of this this monumental
0: importance of what happens to Achilles on the battlefield. Yes, right? to that particular character. So before we go into Wikipedia, yeah. of which I am a great fan, yes. not being facetious at all. Me either. Um, I'd like to read a little bit of Brooks Otis, chapter eight. Okay. Bring him back in. All right. He says, there is no need for elaborate summary. The novelty of Virgil's work should now be clear he had no real precedent for the Aeneid. Horace in the Ars Poetica had drawn a picture of what a real epic should be and had said in effect that the only proper model was Homer, not some disunified string of adventures or klea, glory tales, not another Tebeus or Argonautica, and above all, not history in epic clothes, but a unified poem in the high style with real heroes and gods. He thus discarded the whole post-Homeric past without really conveying any idea of how such an astounding return to Homer itself could be accomplished. And Virgil, as a a poet schooled in Neoteric and Alexandrian doctrina, was certainly well aware that the Greek critics for whom he had most respect had long given up Homeric epic as a possible medium of effective poetry. Hmm. So that seems to me, uh, both to reinforce Springer in some sense, Otis says, Horace says, you can't, Judge by the stuff between Homer and our day, what good epic is? You got to go to the source, yeah. right? So that kind of reinforces what Springer is saying, but I think it also reinforces your point a little bit in that Virgil was doing something really novel, new, yeah, yeah and there was no precedent, including for what happened to Aeneas after the epic,
1: right? Which uh, the, yes, which would make if you were, if we're comparing the endings of the Iliad and the Aeneid, the ending of the Aeneid is, is makes it that much more haunting, exactly. Yeah. Um, can I sh- Let me share what, what Wikipedia has to says, uh, say about like, what happened to Aeneas after the right. action
0: of the Aeneid. And, and the Wikipedia, you know that what the wiki stands for? What does it stand for? Well, there's two theories. One is that it's a Polynesian word that has to do with knowledge. Okay. And my source is Wikipedia. Uh, the other is that it stands for what I know is. Is that right? I... It's it's an acronym for what I know is. Oh, okay.
1: All right. Um, I, like the, I like the Polynesian one. Yeah I, yeah, I do too. <laughs> I hope that's true. Well, um, Wikipedia says the rest of Aeneas biography biographies gleaned from other ancient sources, including Livy and Ovid's metamorphoses. According to Livy, Aeneas was victorious, but Latinus died in the war. Aeneas founded the city of Lavinium, named after his wife. He later welcomed Dido's sister, Anna Perenna, who then committed suicide
0: after learning of Lavinia's jealousy. Anna Perenna. That sounds like a gelato shop, <laughs> Does, doesn't it?
1: Exactly, Off right. the
0: Pantheon? Right,
1: right. Let's uh, let's swing by. It's Anna nice Perennas to, and to, pick uh, up some gelato. Right. Um, I was unaware of this tradition hmm. that uh, like Aeneas tries to in some ways kind of double down on the Dido episode. He, right. He feels so bad. Well, let me bring bring uh, uh, Anna over. Right. right. I, I don't know. Um, but then, okay, then she commits suicide because Lavinia is jealous. Um, after Aeneas' death, Venus asked Jupiter to make her son immortal. Jupiter agreed.
0: So that's in Ovid. Yes. Right? He becomes the god Indigase.
1: That's right, that's right, yep. Um, the river god Numicus cleansed Aeneas of all his mortal parts, and Aeneas, Venus anointed him with ambrosia and nectar, making him a god. Aeneas was recognized as the god Jupiter Indiges. Hmm. So, uh
0: Not that exciting. Not that exciting. You can see kind of why. It's,
1: it's kind of funny. We just said, oh, he was made into a god. Eh, it's
0: kind of Meh. pedestrian. <laughs> <laughs> well, this apotheosis, right the, right? the becoming of a god is an overused trope. Yeah, it's and, right. I would say... Uh, But you can see maybe why Virgil left it out. Why why include this kind of information? What does it add to the story? Nothing. Nothing. It adds nothing to the story. So I'm going to argue in favor of Springer's notion that the abrupt ending is not so unusual. It's purely Homeric. And uh, thereby, Virgil achieves a greater historic, I mean, sorry, artistic accomplishment because he doesn't try to go beyond his material.
1: And I would agree. And I think I would also say that um, the ending of the Aeneid, to me, speaks to. Uh, the, kind of the interpretive um, bent that uh, the epic itself is kind of equal parts queasiness and equal parts praise of Augustus. Okay. Right. So if this was going to be a full blown praise of Augustus and the establishment of this new golden age that that right. has come in, I think he would have added a little bit more.
0: Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, there's also the theory that um, it was unfinished in in the sense that he wanted to do something else. Right. But I think we won't go into this. The comparison to the epilogue in Ovid's Metamorphoses, there Ovid praises Augustus in a fulsome fashion. Right now, people think that fulsome means full, but it doesn't. It means lickspittle. Right, it's a kind of uh, you know kissing someone's shoes. Right? right, that's what fulsome means. It's too much. Too much. Yeah. And there he says, you know, uh, I'm going to praise uh, every god. I'm going to cite every god. And you, Augustus, may you never die. But if you do someday. Right then, you become a god, and I'll worship you too. Right, and it's so tongue-in-cheek, and uh, Virgil couldn't do something like that. No, 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 because no. his theme was much more grand. Yes. Yeah. Wait here. Right. Without a doubt. Yeah. So here comes the rage again, yeah. falling on my head like a memory. Yeah, you know that. What's going on? Do you know here? the reference there? I do not. It's,
1: uh, it's the Annie Lennox
0: song. Here comes Annie the rain. Annie Lennox. Again. Yes. Did she invite? Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Invent that fine china. Is that? Lennox, yeah, that's uh, no, uh, fine.
1: China, isn't it? Yeah, it has nothing to do with her. I'm, I'm sad
0: to say. Okay, but,
1: uh, a great female vocalist, was right. With the Eurythmics, kind of an alto. Uh, well, she could do, she could do it all. Really, she could sing kind of low alto. To Good high range. Oh, phenomenal.
0: Something about um broken glass. Walking on broken glass. Is that one of her, her songs. Hits. She
1: also did a great cover of um, um, White or Pale whiter
0: shade of pale yes the
1: Procol harem the the band with the latin nothing of what you're talking about oh my goodness okay all right this is i'm gonna get all agitated we gotta i imagine
0: (laughs) johnny pop but this segment is entitled in her honor
1: yes exactly right so um if the listener will remember the previous episode Mm -hmm. we were talking about how um book 12 proceeds in the first half we have an aeneas who is religiously correct. He seems kind of bent and trying to keep the peace. He wants to kind of be civilized. He wants to bring all this to close in a a kind of a law and order kind of way. But circumstances slash fate uh, decide otherwise. And it's at that middle point in in the epic where we start to see him turn towards the rage. And that's what's going on here.
0: So you want to read a little Latin? I would love to. Yes. Beginning on line number four hundred and thirty. Il labadus pugnai surdras incluserat alro hink atquincodit cremoras hastem astam coruscat post quabalis latere clibeus lorica quatergest ascanium huc sic kitakum completetur armis sumaqua per galiam de libbons osculafatur
1: nicely done as always thank you all right and here's lombardo's translation with a little bit more aeneas was hungry for the fight impatient of any delay he clapped golden greaves onto his shins uh, by the way, gold, a terrible metal for uh, for armor. It's,
0: it's a incredibly heavy. It's
1: heavy and it's soft too,
0: right? Is it soft? It's soft. Okay. It's, it's a pliable metal, but it's also very dense. Interesting. Yeah, so, uh, it's kind of like me, soft and dense. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so he he clapped on golden greaves onto his shins and started handling a spear. As soon as his breastplate was strapped on and his shield was fitted to his side, he put his arms around Ascanius, kissed him lightly through his helmet and said, "'Learn how to be a man from me, my son.' Learn good fortune from others. Today, my hand will defend you in war and lead you to great rewards. And when you come of age, see to it that you remember the example of your kinsmen and that your father Aeneas uh, and and that of your father Aeneas and your uncle Hector enliven your soul.
0: I love that. That's uh, Iliad 6. Right, updated. That's the Sky and Gates. Yes. Hector and Andromache and Astyanax yes. at the Sky and Gates. Exactly. Where Andromache and the kid, the kid's an infant, so there's a difference, mm-hmm. are saying goodbye to Hector when he goes out onto the field to meet Achilles. Right. And the nurse is a part of that also, you remember. That's right, that's right. And uh, when he puts on his helmet, Astyanax, also known as Scamander, is afraid of his father. That's right. It's intimidating. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this is an updated version of the same thing. Yes.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to read a little bit more, uh, just a, a little further on in the
0: poem. Can I just ask you a question? Yes, though? please. Yep. The the translation, very well done by mm-hmm. uh, Lombardo, uh, indicates that Aeneas is kind of saying goodbye as though he's going to die. Is this just um, pro forma, or does he really fear the outcome of this conflict?
1: I don't. I think that at this point, I don't think he does. I I think this is. Um, I see this as Virgil as kind of um, playing with the audience's expectations. Okay. So the audience at this point, of course, well, they've known throughout that Aeneas isn't going to die, right? His fate fate has said otherwise. Um, But Virgil seems to take delight in in um, kind of these reversal of of expectations. We see kind of a Hector here who survives. Mm -hmm. And we talked about last time too about, you know, comparing Aeneas and Ternus, how there's this flip-flop of kind of who's playing the Hector role, who's playing the Achilles role. Right. Here, very clearly, uh, Aeneas is playing the Hector role, but he's about to flip to Achilles. Okay. So that's the the way that I see it.
0: I think that's right. Right.
1: So a little further on, so once Aeneas, so again, here in the passage we just read, Aeneas' is. Um, he's very much our civilized, um, uh, Aeneas. He's uh, thinking about his son. He's thinking about posterity. He's thinking about this as kind of a life lesson for his son. But once he starts getting, uh, you know, knee deep in the battle, that's when kind of the rage takes over. Okay. So, um, I'll read here. His mind pulled in contrary directions. And meanwhile, Masapas, treading lightly and carrying two javelins tipped with steel, rifled one of them at him with deadly aim. Aeneas went down to one knee and crouched behind his shield as the spearhead sheared the crest from his helmet. He felt a sudden surge of anger at this treacherous attack. He saw Turnus's chariot pulling away, calling to witness Jupiter himself and, and the altars of the broken treaty, and he has plunged into the general combat.
0: So the treaty that's been broken here is that it would be a dual machia. Yes. Right? It would be a Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton kind of thing. That's right. And here you have James Madison... Taking a pot shot from the periphery. <laughs>
1: that sounds like Jimmy.
0: That's Masapus, right? <laughs> right,
1: right, right. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I like Madison, the shortest of the founders.
1: Is he the shortest of the founders? Yeah, right. by far. Oh, really? I think he was under five feet tall. Okay, so he had a bit of a kind of a Napole- I can relate. Na- Napoleon complex. Maybe. <laughs> right, right,
0: right. Before um, uh, Napoleon, before Napoleon, there's some uh, anachronistic posturing. I like it.
1: I actually, I missed the last line there that I had there. So, so, and he is plunged into the general combat, and with Mars at his back, began to kill. I, I, indiscriminately. Indiscriminately, right. And so it, this is uh, indiscriminately, gripping his rage free reign. Free there's reign. There's the era there. Yeah. And so I, I mark that as the moment, okay, that's where there's, there's, the flip has taken place.
0: Yes, I like the Latin here, which uh, you have included in the script. Yeah. fundit," right? He released omnis habenas, all the rains, uh on his anger. Right. So he had been keeping a tight grip, right? Keeping it under wraps, you might say. It was all serenity now. Mm-hmm. Now it's uh, it's insanity later,
1: right? And I guess I suppose you could make the the argument is that you know what really sets
0: him off, it's the fact that the law and order has been broken. The treaty, the treaty. You don't make an elaborate treaty, right? And this goes back to your um, dislike of the rituals, right? Mm-hmm. The religious rituals and so forth by which the treaty is ratified. This is an act of impiety, yes. on Mesopas' part. He's uh, insulting the gods because these treaties were not hastily made. Yeah. It's all done properly. Right.
1: Let me a a slight. Okay. uh, A slight pushback. It's not that I don't like the rituals. It's just that they're they're interminable. It's
0: too much. It's too much. Maybe you're not a Roman.
1: (laughs) I'm not a Roman. But when you Uh, buy
0: a house, right, how much documentation is there? It's like a hundred pages. You got to sign things. Yeah. I haven't bought one recently, thankfully, but it's always tedious. It
1: is tedious, but I don't want to read the epic treatment of my
0: mortgage process. I know, but I'm saying (laughs) this treaty is like that. Yes. They had to, you know, sign everything in quadruplicate. And now Masapis, well, I see a chance to, you know, to wing Aeneas. I'll just whip the spear at him. Right. That's not what you do. Right.
1: Yeah. And so I think it's, 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 that's certainly a big part of it. Maybe that's the main part of it too, but it, it talks about how you know, the, the spear clips off the uh, crest of his helmet. Right. It reminds me of kind of my days in playing kind of. Um, kind of, uh, roughhouse kind of pick up basketball yeah and how you can be kind of calm cool and collected but when somebody kind of gives you an elbow right that you think is a little egregious for me that could just, everything goes it just goes you become right? the achilles be, of the court
0: exactly right right yeah wow. right. and it didn't make me any better it actually made me much worse player so you're like a postman i'm guessing like a like, small uh, forward kind of
1: yeah i was a small forward yeah right. I was a terrible basketball player but really? those kinds of things if i felt like somebody who had like going out of their way to and kind of... Elbow
0: to the ribs? Elbow to the
1: ribs or to, you know, to the face. Right. It would be, I would be, uh, I'd be out with my fifth foul very, very quickly. Would there be a lot of smack talk? Uh, no, would, I, not from me. Not from, I mean, it wasn't a smack talker, but I, I tried to
0: let okay. my rage do the talking. <laughs> What's the difference between smack talk and trash talk? I don't think there is. I've never understood that.
1: I don't think, that, is there a difference? I've, 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 I've been I've told there them. is a difference. I've, I've heard those used kind of interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Right?
0: But, so this is um, Masapis. Kind of giving Aeneas an elbow to the ribs, I think so. like, In the paint,
1: right, G- getting the crest of your helmet kind of chopped right. off—that's gotta be embarrassing,
0: right? Right. And Aeneas responds with unbridled rage.
1: Right. So we can th- i love that that uh, Virgil gives us those two parts. It's the broken treaty. Mm-hmm. Right? He's been trying to keep law and order up to this point,
0: even promising that when I win, I'm not going to dominate Ex- all of Turnus's followers. Exactly. I'm going to be, you know, a peace-loving, benevolent ruler. Right. Right.
1: So at this point in the battle. Uh, Aeneas and Turnus are both out there, and they're kind of slaughtering everything that comes in their path. They haven't faced each other yet. That's it's building to that, um, and that's when Venus, who's like in, kind of lurking on the edges here, she recognized that in all of this chaos, the city is still peaceful and is is left um, more or less kind of unprotected.
0: Okay, so so how does Venus, Aphrodite, Jeff, in your estimation, how does she in this epic compare to Athena in the Odyssey?
1: Oh, there's no comparison. In, like in terms. In of, what sense? Like in terms of like who I prefer as a narrative figure. Well or, yes
0: and what you think about the characterization the interest the sympathy
1: um i find i find venus very unsympathetic
0: okay I in fi- the in the aeneid
1: in the aeneid right? i find i mean yeah she's clearly our venus is to aeneas as athena is to right. odysseus right but athena uh, i mean she has this this connection with odysseus in terms of they share they share a matis
0: right, right? she I, says i i love him because like me he's clever it, right he can tell good lies and i admire that
1: right and i think you could make the argument that you know um so athena doesn't have children of her own but Odysseus is a kind of surrogate son yeah personally because they they share these characteristics aeneas is literally venus's son and,
0: which, and which, she doesn't love him she doesn't love him right no.
1: she, it would seem like that that kind of relationship would make it a much more deeper connection
0: there's no affection
1: no no, it's very, and she shows up at kind of these odd, right. um, you know, these, these strange times. She's not hovering around like Athena often does. She doesn't
0: come down. No and, compassion, no concern. He's, no. It seems like Aeneas is simply a vehicle for her grudge against Juno.
1: That's exactly what I was just gonna say, okay. right? And that's an interesting kind of wrinkle to that. You know, I, mean, I suppose. Athena doesn't help Odysseus because she's trying to get back at Ares or whatever, right? right. And so there's a much more kind of personal interest. But yeah, I think it like Venus uses her son to, um, you know, give a rude gesture to, to Juno. That's what seems to be going
0: on here. Right. So here we sit in the 21st century, never having written an epic, to my knowledge, uh, either of us. How could Aeneas have done this better with the character of Venus? What would you have liked to have seen instead? There's nothing better than second guessing the classics.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. I think that I would pref- I would have preferred, like at least in book 12, that Venus doesn't show up at all.
0: Oh. And so, she's so underwhelming you'd rather not have her on stage right
1: right and, and i think that would kind of raise kind of interesting theological yeah teleological questions but,
0: so she's you know. like godfather <laughs> three right. Right? Yeah, right right the goddess you wish had never happened exactly
1: you have you seen have you seen that
0: yes right have you seen them all i believe i have yeah yeah it's, it's yeah. a
1: regrettable addition to the to the to the yes canon. right mm-hmm. yeah so yeah like godfather three i wish venus just had never had never shown up right so i mean wh- what do you think about or, Venus? Or, or like your question was, what could Virgil have done different or what would have made it better?
0: Well, I kind of wonder whether she couldn't have shown some genuine humanity. That's odd to say about a you know a goddess and immortal, but some genuine affection, sympathy, compassion for her son, because he's put up with a lot. But I guess that that would make her in some ways a competitor for Dido, because that story has kind of already been told, deep personal um, affection. Yeah. And um, so much time has been spent establishing Anchises as the sympathetic individual in Aeneas' life. Right. And I think, again, that goes to the Roman sense of the um, the paternal bond, right? All throughout Roman literature, um, the f- bond between father and son is primary. Right, It's not that they didn't love their mothers and wives, but it doesn't get a lot of airtime. It's true. It's really subdued. And again, I'm not trying to be so naive as to think, there wasn't true affection, you know, within Roman families, but you just didn't talk about it. Right. So I think that would be un-Roman if it were stressed too much.
1: I I agree with that. I wonder if even Virgil recognized at some level on the incongruity between... Venus's maternal instincts towards Aeneas and her the goddess herself being kind of an embodiment of libido
0: that's right right
1: and so it's just that her being a, um, right you know a, a doting mother just doesn't fit with kind of who you' right is or that's what she an is, excellent right? point
0: point. So, and that okay. gives I think that gives Virgil a lot of credit for making the tough choices that he had to make yeah. in terms of characterization right again by contrast with Ovid, Venus litters the pages of the metamorphoses it, right always acting in an entirely juvenile fashion right <laughs>
1: exactly right
0: and so uh, you know Virgil's not gonna do that
1: no 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 so I mean it, it doesn't it doesn't ruin the story for me no but it doesn't seem like at some level Virgil is I, what do I do with this right right um, and so I think all told I think he handles it very very well right he's got a much difficult much more difficult thing to deal with than Homer with Athena right yeah so, um, so Venus inspires Aeneas to, to, to say, you know, don't you know, get away from the, the thick of the battle and look, the city is ripe for the picking. You want to read a little bit of Lombardo sure. here?
0: Yeah, I would. She says, I want no delay in carrying out my orders. Oh, this,
1: actually, this Aeneas is speaking here.
0: I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no Problems. problem. Yep. Jupiter is on our side, he says, and I don't want anyone holding back because the decision is sudden. That city, the cause of this war, the heart of Latinus's realm. Unless they surrender and submit to our rule, that city I will today overthrow and lay its smoking roofs level with the ground. Am I supposed to wait until Turnus feels like doing battle with me until he comes back for more, beaten though he is? This is the crux of the accursed war, men. Bring torches and reclaim the treaty with fire.
1: All right. So, storm the battlements.
0: Yes. And here is a historical connection. You remember, of course, the lovely city of Perugia. I do. Right. And you remember that during, you know, the second civil war, when there was, uh, Antony competing against Octavian, mm-hmm. that city chose the wrong side. It went with Antony and the Republican side. That's right. And um, Octavian leveled it. I mean, took every stone off and then reestablished it as Perugia Augusta, rebuilt the whole thing in his name. Wow. So yeah. I think there is a, a definite illusion here uh, to that historical event.
1: I, I never, I never read of that connection. That's yeah. really interesting. I love that. Yeah.
0: Right. So so, where do we go next? Well,
1: now here, um, this is where uh, Amata finds mm. her finds her end. So we talked about some, some Greek s- tragedy
0: in here. We do right.
1: right. So I, I, what did what did you think of, of Amata's suicide? Was it just kind of layering it on for the sake of layering it on, or did you find this moving and tragic?
0: I, I don't find her sympathetic for whatever reason. I don't really understand her motivations. This could very well be a failure on my part as a reader, right? It's not fair to to um, blame the author for the reader's failure to appreciate certain characterizations. Good point, yeah. Uh, I don't know, but I have never been particularly moved by Amada. Now she has her doppelganger in Dido, right? She's the balance to Dido. Right. Um, but it's just not compelling.
1: So you do see uh, some of that parallelism Absolutely. that we'll be talking about uh, a bit later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I thought it was, it happens very, very quickly. Right. Right. And we talked last time about, you know, Amada has this co- connection to this love of Turnus, which right. is... Kind of puzzling
0: to some degree. It's very strong.
1: Right. And but so she sees the city being uh, kind of overrun. And because the city's being overrun, she assumes that Turnus has failed. He's dead. Right. And so she um she fashions a noose and she hangs herself. Mm. Um so yeah, it it kinda her death kind of reminded me of um Eurydice's death in Antigone. So Creon's wife, who's basically kind of a non- Right. Uh, 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 The
0: mother of Haman, right? Yes. Yes.
1: And so she also commits suicide. Right. It it seems like just kind of like uh, an add-on.
0: She does it out of grief for the death of her son, isn't Because he kills himself when Antigone Antigone. kills herself. Right. (laughs)
1: Exactly. But it has always struck me. as like um, Sophocles says, well, we just need another body here. Right. It it just seemed like her character has never really developed in that play. And you you never kinda of get a connection with her. In the same way that I think we don't really get a connection with a mom.
0: Yeah. But here's a here's um some, something from the annals of um limited um understanding on the part of the, the reader. Mm-hmm. When I was in eighth grade, it was the first time that I encountered Shakespeare. Yeah. And I watched a play, I think it was at Michigan State University, uh, of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. It was the first I had encountered Shakespeare, eighth grade. And I came away thinking, Well, that was pretty poor. <laughs> Everyone dies at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's a clear indication of my failure to understand mm. really much at all about the depth of, you know, human emotion and and love and romance and tragedy and sorrow. But then again, I was in eighth grade. Right.
1: Right, right, right. But it just
0: shows that the reader, you know, the viewer has a responsibility as well. Yes. So I wonder if something similar may be going on here. Okay. All right. I will I will follow you in Do that. Do you remember adventure. when you... Charitable approach, yes. When you yep. first encountered Shakespeare,
1: yeah, it was. I mean, we ne- we didn't see it. Uh, we read. I remember reading Romeo and Juliet, okay, and, and being very in a high, high school uh, literature high class. Schools, I think it was eighth or ninth grade, like, like right, two, and being very underwhelmed by it, right. Um, but then in high school, we did. Uh, we took a, um, a class trip to Stratford, Ontario, where they, oh. they have the, the famous Shakespeare right. Festival, and we saw a production of Taming of the Shrew yeah. that was done in like uh, America in the
0: 1950s. And you were blown away. I was
1: blown away. Right. It was fabulous. Yeah. And then since then I've, I've seen productions of Macbeth in kind of the classic style, right. which is my favorite Shakespeare play. Mm. Um, and it's I, a very short one, it, if I'm not mistaken. It's short, it's just brilliant front to back. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was, I've never loved Romeo and Juliet. Right. I, and, and even as you were talking, I, I thought... Maybe that
0: wasn't the best one for me to first encounter, well, but...
1: He, I mean, he's, he's you know, Romeo Je, Romeo and Juliet is, is modeled on kind of these cheeseball, you know, ancient Greek romances. Yes. You know, where and, the uh,
0: Pyramus and Thisbe and Ovid. Right.
1: And, and, the, and where the, the girl and the guy, they, they, miss, they mistake the other one for being dead and they can't right. help themselves and you kind of follow them in death. And the other one wakes up, right? Yeah, but
0: the brilliance of the language was lost on me. Yeah. As well as any kind of compassion for them individuals involved in the story. Right. <laughs> I was in eighth grade. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I think with Shakespeare, for an eighth grader, the language is a, is a huge barrier.
0: Well, right? it takes, and I'm not casting aspersions on any of my teachers at the time, because I don't think I could teach Shakespeare to eighth graders, but it takes a particularly gifted teacher um, to convey that kind of information mm-hmm. to someone at that age. Right, right. And it's a high, a high bar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just another tiny digression since we're on Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the last few weeks we were talking about Jack Holtzmark, right? Yes. And Tarzan and Tradition. Indeed. Holtzmark made a comment that I have never forgotten. And he said that no author has had more impact on a culture than Homer on the Greeks, with the possible exception of Shakespeare in English. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was very insightful. I've yeah. thought about that a lot.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, think that, I think that's right on. Right. Yeah, right on, yeah. I remember I had a, a um, an English teacher in high school. When we were, I think we read Macbeth, and then we were going we to watch, um, a, you know, a videotape production of it. And um, he said, you know, with the language, he says, you know, don't get hung up on. Wait, what did he just say? What on earth could that mean? He says, he I remember he said, just he says, just let it wash over you. Right. Let it wash over you. And so, in a, you know, a good production, a good acted production of, of Shakespeare, you know, the visuals will fill in the gaps. Right. Right. Um, not not always, but I I thought, yeah, okay, you just kind of let the language. I mean, and he said, I thought. Whatever he, I have no idea what Macbeth just said, but it was powerful and it was beautiful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you don't have to understand every little detail. Without, right. Without that's uh, good advice to, to you know to pre, to appreciate the the beauty of it. Yeah.
0: That's good advice, especially mm-hmm. for someone who's young. Right. So where are we headed next, Jeff? As we get back on on uh, topic here. All right.
1: So Amada is is dead, um, and Turnus now he finally recognizes. Oh my goodness, the city is being is being sacked and 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 looted. Um, Juturna. His sister, who's been down there disguised and has been trying to kind of, you know, protect him. Uh, it's Juno, remember, that that comes to Juturnus says, "Hey, do as long as do right. as much as you can to, to...
0: cause some havoc, yes. Del- delay the inevitable."
1: Right. And so uh, Turnus wants to go to the city, and Juturna tries to keep him in the battle. She recognizes, you know, every step he takes towards the city is a, is a step towards the, all of this ending.
0: And then Turnus has this monologue, right? Yes. Right. And so he reco- can you read some of that sure. for us from
1: Lombardo? Yes. And so he says to Juturnus, "says Now, sister." The fates triumph at last. Stop holding me back. We will follow where God is and cruel fortune call us. My mind is made up. I will meet Aeneas and bear bear death's bitterness. No longer, sister, will you see me shamed. But first, allow me to rage with furious rage. Mm. So he recognizes that, okay, he knows that his death is 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 coming. But he's also going to, he's going to... Um,
0: go, go out like a man. He's going to
1: amp up his body count. Yeah. You know, on the way there. Go down punching. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Right. Right.
0: So if I can continue there, yeah. the spear Aeneas had thrown, because Aeneas tries to, uh, you know, whips a spear at Turnus, but it uh, lodges in a tree trunk. Yes. It misses him, right? Yep. Um, the the arrow that gets him slows him down. But to quote Lombardo, the spear Aeneas had thrown was stuck in the tough roots of this tree, and the Trojan now stooped to pull it out so he could take down with this weapon the man he could not catch on foot. Turnus, out of his mind with fear, cried out, Have pity on me, Faunus and Mother Earth. Hold fast the spear, if ever I have honored you, whom the men of Aeneas now profane in war. He spoke, and the gods heard his prayer. Aeneas struggled long with the pliant root, but could not with all his strength force open its stubborn grip. And while he struggled, Juturna, transformed again into Mentiscus, ran up and handed her brother his sword. Venus, outraged at the nymph's audacity, came and plucked the spear out from the root.
1: All right, now this is really interesting. This is one place where I I like that Virgil brought Venus into the mix.
0: Okay, because you know, speaking of parallelisms...
1: oh no, come on, Jeff, make what?
0: up your mind. You want Venus on the scene, you don't want Venus on the scene. I wonder there
1: on my terms. Okay,
0: right. <laughs> I don't think she's gonna she's gonna go for that. You know, she rides in a chariot pulled by doves. It's true. That's just true. You're right. Exactly. So. Um, um, but anyway, all that, is, all that aside,
1: right? So uh, speaking of parallelisms, right? This, this, um, you know, if uh, Book Twelve has resonance with Book Six or vice, yep. vice versa, this struck me as, as Aeneas pl- plucking the golden bow. That's right. So way back when, when we were talking about Book Six,
0: plucking the golden bow right. as his uh, totem to get into the underworld.
1: Right. And that that very interesting word that "kum tantum" there. So That's we, right. Remember, Aeneas is told that
0: sluggish, reluctant.
1: So if he says if. If you're fated to do this, right. the bow will basically drop into your hands. That's correct. But when he actually gets it, right. it resists. And right. he has to pluck it here. It's
0: like getting the paper wrapper off your straw. Oh, yeah. You talk about frustration. <laughs> exactly. Has that happened to you before? It
1: has. And, right, and then You what-
0: order it, and you know, extra. Big gulp, and you just want to get the straw in there, and yeah. you know, get down to the thirst quenching. And you don't want to wait. No, but you can't get that thing out of the paper <laughs> it's, sleeve. It's
1: terrible, right?
0: I think it's put there for our own sanitary protection. Yeah, but I'm willing to risk it. Yeah, I I. not want to wait another five seconds. The
1: only thing that I ha- is in favor of the, of the paper sleeve is like when you do get the top off, you know, right. um, Easily, then you can blow on the straw and shoot. That's fun. That's fun. But right. you know,
0: they began weakening the end of those things just to frustrate children. They did. You didn't know that. No, the end <laughs> of the paper kid. sleeve is weaker so that when you blow on it, it has no devastating impact on your comrades.
1: Oh, my goodness. Right. Oh, that makes me very upset. So
0: that's the kunk tantem here, right? Yes. The bow came slowly. Right. But here what? It, it comes out.
1: It comes out. Well, it, can, it seems like he's wrestling with the spear that's stuck in the tree, right? right. So it kind of reminds me of the bow there. And it also kind of reminds me of, you know, the glass slipper, its Excalibur. Mm. whoever can pull the sword from the stone will The glass slipper the... is
0: Cinderella. Cinderella, right? right? Okay.
1: Whoever's foot... You know, Fitz is the princess. Right. If I mean, whoever draws the sword will become king of England here. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. It, exactly. Right, right. Um, and so Aeneas kind of pulling the spear out, it seems to be kind of a, one of those moments. Huh. And Aeneas has to come, or sorry, Venus has to come down and pluck it out for him. Here, let me do
0: that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Venus says, ah. hold my beer. He's, like, he's
1: trying to open the pickle jar. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and he, can't, he can't do it. And so it, it, it's one of these moments where I think, it, it, like the Golden Bout, yeah. it kind of, okay, Aeneas is chosen, he's faded, but it's, right. there's also some questions about it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Speaking of opening pickle jars, yeah. it's time for the ads. Let's do it. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing has been bringing high-quality translations of the classics, as well as all other kinds of literature, to a mass audience for 52 years. Am I mistaken? No, that's exactly right. Okay, yep. Jeff, what do you like about Hackett? And you must answer this without mentioning the glorious covers. Well, I love the covers. Wait a minute!
1: <laughs> no, I love the affordability. I love the accuracy of the translations. Um, the Lombardo translation of the Aeneid has been fabulous. I'm going to be. I'm going to seriously miss that when we move on. Right. Um. I've you know I've used Lombardo's translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey,
0: um, uh, all
1: kinds of 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 different. I love the translation of the
0: Bacchae. We know you uh, keep an emergency copy of the uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses in your glove box. In my glove box, you never Guess know you when you're going to need it. Right? right, you end up in a snow bank. You want to go out reading Ovid.
1: Yep. So I found it's um it's great for students. It's great just to have on your shelf. Um, the translations from Hackett always kind of thread that needle between being you know, true to the original language, but also readable for the modern
0: audience. Yes. Approachable. Yep. And you've uh, told some interesting stories lately about how much your students appreciate the affordability.
1: Yes. Oh, they are not going to yeah.
0: be crushed beneath the cost of these books. Right.
1: I, I teach community college students and right. a lot of them are you know are coming to, to college with not a lot of money jangling That's in right. their pocket. And so right. they, they really appreciate that Hackett
0: fits that bill. That's excellent. So... What if our listeners would like to do two things? Yep. They'd like to score some great uh, copies of the classics in both paperback and hardcover, mm-hmm. and they would like to support this humble podcast. Yes. What ought they do? They should go to
1: HackettPublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com. Find those texts that you want, drop them in the basket, uh, and then type in, the this coupon code is an two zero two three so an ad nauseum plus the current
0: year yes and i'm no profit but i think that uh long about january 1 yes it'll probably change to an2024
1: possibly
0: is there a chance we'll,
1: we'll see then. okay right? and if you do that dear listener you will get uh, two amazing things. You will get um, 20% off your entire order and
0: free shipping. Check it
1: out. This episode of Ad Nauseam also brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Dave, I had a cup of Ratio Coffee from a Ratio 8 this
0: morning. I did too. You, and, and how oh, was it? From mine, not from yours. That's right, yeah. You didn't see me sneak into your kitchen. I hate it when you pour do that. Pour a cup. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> my, cup, my cup was wonderful. How about, how about yours? It was
0: excellent. Yes. I decided to make the roast a little bit stronger you today. You did. Yeah, so I used my Baratza burr grinder, nice, which I also picked up from Ratio, Yes, and uh, ground some uh, some delicious beans, uh, set, set it on 21, and a uh, stronger roast. It was very fortifying. A- a- excellent. Skip breakfast, just drink a couple cups of coffee. W- without a doubt, right? right.
1: So, yes. Um, so, listeners, um, do yourself a favor. Check out RatioCoffee.com and look at one of these wonderful machines, or both, the Ratio right. 6, uh, and its older brother, the Ratio 8.
0: You're a veteran of both.
1: I am a veteran of both, and uh, they're both wonderful, reliable, right. uh,
0: heirloom-type uh, machines. Yeah, speaking of heirloom, yes? some listeners <laughs> might say, come on, guys, I-, I like the podcast to some extent, I love coffee, mm-hmm. but there's no way I can pay that much for a coffee machine, are you crazy? Right. What would you say to them?
1: I would say that um, you are it's an investment, like right. if you love coffee, um, and you're serious about your coffee. This is a machine that is going to last uh, you a very, very long time. That's it's, right. It's not going to give out like one of these uh, dime store off the shelf brands.
0: Right. It's going to last um, decades. It's going
1: to last decades. Um, it's going to it's going to give you a perfect cup of coffee every time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, it's one of these places where I think where you get what you pay for.
0: Yeah. I have to say that uh, in the time that I have owned the Ratio 8, mm-hmm. I have owned two lawnmowers. <laughs> is that right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my lawnmower fails more readily than this coffee machine. Oh, my and goodness. I have to tell you, I do not use my lawnmower every day. <laughs> right. Okay, yeah. I know it's maybe a more complicated machine, but it just it just shows that uh, the Ratio 8 is built really, really well. I think mean, that illustrates that very well. So
1: do yourself a favor. Go to RatioCoffee.com. Um, find the machine that you want. And what's our coupon code now for the this? The
0: coupon code for the month of May is A-N-C-O-3 and then F for flavor. 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 Gotcha. Or flantabulous. Flenta-
1: so. Nice. Yes. ANCO 3F and that will, what will that get them?
0: 15% off. Do not delay. All right, Jeff. Yes. As we get back into it, the mm-hmm. camera, as uh, you like to say, the camera has to now zoom up, pan out and zoom up to Olympus. Yes. And we're going to get the divine perspective. On the events on the field Yes
1: um, I like this I like this scene a lot I didn't like it at first But okay. once I thought about it um, I, I I just I know that You know Virgil's He's wrapping things up Right And he has to have a scene Where Juno finally says Fine Yeah The uh, rapprochement Right And so she has to kind of give in She has to bend the knee And so uh, She finally recognizes Jupiter says You know Are you finally ready to uh, right. t- To step aside And she agrees And she abandons uh, Turnus. And um, in in a in a, um, in a way that that also kind of uh, strikes me as very Homeric um, hmm. of um, Hector, you know, when he's when he's down there fighting Achilles, and right, he's abandoned by, by the yeah. gods, and he's left. Apollo, right,
0: Apollo, yep, deceived and abandoned,
1: right, and so we get a, a very similar kind of scene, and I, I the language just kind of. Um, Emphasizes how alone hmm. and vulnerable Turnus is, hmm. and um, he's gonna, yeah, uh,
0: so, hurtling towards his fate. So the duel is finally on. Mm-hmm. Turnus and Aeneas trade stones and spear throws, yep. and at last Aeneas throws a spear which rips through Turnus's shield and into his thigh. Right. No more squats mm-hmm. for him. Yep. He sinks to the ground, pleads for the return of his body, and an end to the rage, and he says...
1: Um, before I do this so again so Turnus here is very clearly our Hector right okay so remember in the Iliad Hector is I think he's wounded in the neck uh, but Homer says he's uh, his voice box was still there that he could speak
0: yes this is Eric Bana. Eric Bana, right the Australian actor yeah uh, with a call back to our early and mostly unsuccessful episode <laughs> known as
1: uh more bods than God that's
0: correct <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> our review of the movie Troy it was something like the fifth or sixth episode right after um Uh, History in the Trojan War, which was a a successful one, and uh, Schliemann with exclamation points, which people also liked. Yeah. But uh, our takedown of that movie? Yeah. No.
1: I think the, the idea is that's just all the more reason they should go back and judge, you think judge so? for themselves. Okay. Because right? I, I was a fan of that. Uh, that you episode.
0: liked that one. I did. It included some audio clips. Yeah, exactly from right. From the movie. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. What does Turnus say at this point?
1: So Turnus says, um, like Hector does, he's kind of, um, he, he kind of begs for a kind, not, not a truce, but he recognizes, okay, you've won. Right. Uh, let's not make this worse than it has to be.
0: Right. Leave me right. with some shreds of dignity. Right. So
1: he says, go ahead. He's speaking to Aeneas, of course. Use your chance. I deserve it. I will not ask anything for myself. But if a parent's grief can still touch you, remember your own father, Anchises, and take pity on Daunus' old age. I beg you, give me, or if you prefer, give my dead body back to my people. So even in there, Turnus is suggesting, I mean, he's not wounded in the throat, he's wounded in the thigh. Right. He's saying, if you want, you could let me live. You could spare my life. Right. But he recognizes that's, you know, that's not really in the cards. He says, You've beaten me, and the Ausonians have seen me beaten. Stretch out my hand to you. Lavinia is yours. Let your hatred stop here. Hmm. And then this is where, because we're getting very close to the the, the last line. Shall shall I keep going here? Oh, yes, I think so. so. We we
0: want to know what happens. So
1: Aeneas stood there, lethal in his bronze. His eyes searched the distance and his hand paused on the hilt of of his sword. Now, again, uh, in terms of, can you see how this- uh, Cinematic? Yes, just kind of, there, there's no soundtrack, the wind is kind of whistling, right? And there's just this really kind of really pregnant
0: you mean, pause soundtrack. You mean there's no music? There's no music, right? right. It's just
1: the natural sounds. But
0: then the, yeah. I would say that probably the wind dies down and the birds stop chir- exactly, chirping, right? And right. it gets to a dead calm. And uh, yeah. who's that? Who's that rabbit in Bambi? <sighs> Come on, I, I, how's your Disney alia?
1: I don't know my. I think bit. it's Thumper. Is it Thumper? Isn't yes. that the name of the rabbit? Yes. Yeah, so is he? He's in this? Maybe. Okay.
0: But, uh, <laughs> on the edge of the meadow, he leans forward oh. with, with his big, uh, rabbity eyes to see what's going to happen. There we right? go. It's a, that pregnant moment. Right.
1: And so he's he's got his hand on the sword, and so Aeneas is at this he's at this point. Okay. Which which Aeneas are we going to get? Are we going to get civilized Aeneas, or are we going to get ragey uh, yes. Aeneas? Says, Turnus's words were winning him over. See, mm-hmm. the, the needle is going towards civilized. But then his gaze shifted to the faithful baldric, the male pattern baldric.
0: Yes. On his
1: enemy's shoulder. And the belt glittered with its familiar metalwork, the belt of young Pallas, whom Turnus had killed and whose insignia he now wore as a trophy.
0: Yes. And remember, yes. all the way back to book six, when he is in the underworld and Anchises is telling him, here are all the famous Romans, but here, right, here, uh, Aeneas, is your task. The Greeks are going to be better at the arts, but your job is to spare the downcast, right? Mm-hmm. And crush superb, and what is it? Um, uh, something about, uh, I'm not going to be able to, Debelara, there you go. Debelara Superbos. Mm-hmm. But grind to a pulp the haughty. Yes. Parker is subiectis at Debelara Superbos. Right. So which is Turnus? Is Is Turnus the... The downtrodden that Aeneas is supposed to spare, yeah, or is he the haughty and arrogant whom Aeneas is supposed to grind into oblivion?
1: Right, and I think it's on that really interesting knife edge, right? Mm. Turnus, as we've seen him in the battle, clearly he's he's superbus, right. right? But in this moment, you know, he's kind of begging for some kind of clementia.
0: Is it authentic yeah. though?
1: Right. Yeah, is it just kind of is opportunistic given Correct. that like, he's
0: never begged before, right. but now when he's under Achilles' heel, I mean, sorry, Aeneas' heel, now suddenly he's humble? Good point, good point.
1: Right. And so uh, it goes on. So he sees the the Baltic of Pallas, Right. So he remembers the young son of uh, Evander. Evander, right? And so Aeneas' eyes drank in this memorial of his own savage grief. And then burning with fury and terrible in his wrath, he said, Do you think you can get away from me while wearing the spoils of one of my own men? palace sacrifices you with this stroke palace and makes you pay with your guilty blood saying this and seething with rage aeneas buried his sword in turnus's chest the man's limbs went limp and cold and with a moan his soul fled resentfully down to the shades
0: nice can i read the latin there please for these last few lines yeah uh you want me to read what is it we got uh, eight here yep is that too many
1: um pick it up where you where you want to Uh, okay yeah
0: I'll, i'll pick it up with the yeah I guess I'll read them all because we want that addressed to palace. Yes. Il oculis <laughs> posquam monumenta doloris. Ex as quo sit furdris a cansus atira. Terribilis tu nynx bulli is in dute meorum. Eird mihi, te hoc vulnera palas imolaret poinam scalarat tex sanguin assumit. Hoc decanes ferrad where so sub pectura condit. Furwidus as delis al wuntur frigorum membra. Vita quacum gemetu fugit indignata sub umbras the end that's it that's it flees away his soul fled resentfully that's indignata mm-hmm. down to the shades and the story ends the story ends yep yeah we're, we're here so what do you think what, what to someone's make of this? reading it for the first time augustus right he says in uh, 19 uh, bc after the death of virgil mm-hmm. he tells Maecenas. Uh, probably Maecenas brought in the news hey augustus guess, octavian guess what virgil's dead and uh, he left these uh, instructions in his will, burn the Aeneid, yeah. right? Throw it into the incinerator in the backyard or something right, like right, that. Right, 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 yep. right. What should I do? And Augustus says, nah, it's good enough for <laughs> let's, me. Let's publish it. Right, right. Send it to Amazon and we'll self-publish it, <laughs> exactly. right? right? Right, Get it right. out there. Let's see how it does. Pay, yeah. Pay for some reviews in order to, you know, boost sales. Right. And then he reads it. He's heard snippets of it before. We know, um, we know that, uh, snippets of it were read to him by Virgil during the course of its composition, mm-hmm. but now he gets to the last line, right? His soul fled resentfully to the shades. What's Augustus make of it? Right.
1: It, I mean, it's it's such a haunting question, right? So it comes down to, if, if, we, if we could see the whole book is kind of a, a choice between Civil, civilization and savagery, mm. Spare right? Spare
0: the downtrodden, and, crush the arrogant. And he
1: chooses savagery, and that's what it, what it ends with. What on earth does that mean? Right. And why would you know, why would Augustus be okay with this? Then also that question that, okay, okay, we do know that the Aeneid is unfinished. There are some lines that don't scan. Yes. There's a few characters that die and then come back to life. Right? Yes. And that he, so the idea is that, okay, if, if Virgil had gone back, he would have kept that it guy dead. just
0: smoothed those things right. out. Might have added thumper. All, right? <laughs> Although... <laughs> maybe or flower the skunk yes maybe it is a deliberate imitation of uh, homer right who had some incongruities in this massive epic
1: but i would buy that as well right, right. I, I certainly don't buy the arguments that he would have added a whole other epilogue to no. this right and they, no, and they, I they don't lived either. happily ever after right yeah. no i love the way it ends right yeah
0: so are, are we ready now to get into the actual interpretations yeah let's with do it. which we have been teasing the audience yeah let's talk about 30 some episodes right Okay, so I have arranged a number of these. This is what I use in my typical, typical uh, mythology classes, uh, what I also use when I teach classical lit. And we start with a, a famous classicist, C.M. Bowra, mm-hmm. his 1945 article, From Virgil to Milton. So, Jeff, could you read this one, and then yes. we'll talk about it. Yes,
1: right. So, um, Baura writes, Virgil revealed an entirely new use for epic to an age for which the old heroic outlook was too anarchic and antisocial. Above all, he made it contain almost a philosophy of life and death a view of the universe which answered many desires in the heart of man and provided an impressive background to the new ideal. Virgil's epic is still epic because it treats of what is greatest and noblest in man.
0: Hmm. I like it. Yeah. Some flowery prose. It doesn't,
1: I don't think it really kind of answers the question. It
0: doesn't. And I, when I teach this, I like to point out the year in which it was written. And I don't want to be uncharitable to anyone, but we are all, right, children of our own time. Mm -hmm. This was written in 1945 after the end of six years of universal war. Right. Right. The Allies and the Axis powers had fought on every continent except Antarctica, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. for six years. And now what do we get? Well, we get an interpretation of the end of the Aeneid, which talks about what is greatest and noblest in man, a philosophy of life and death. Hmm. Now that may in fact be true, and it could just be a coincidence that Bauer wrote this at the end of World War II, but I think it sets up a nice contrast for some of the interpretations that are coming later, which seem even more closely tied to their historical moment. Interesting.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, let's let's go on then. Let's okay. see how this compares. Uh, um so next up we have CJ Ellingham's Interpretation from his article of Virgil's *Pilgrim's Progress* from Greece and Rome, in 1947. So not that long after Bauer's death. That's right, just uh, a couple years later. Why don't, you, why don't you read this for us? Yeah.
0: So he says the theme of the *Aeneid* is not so much *Romanam condigentem*, founding the Roman race, as the deliverance of the world from war, which Virgil believed had been accomplished by Rome and the Augustan settlement. Turnus must die because he stands for war. And with the death of Turnus, the poem ends. Man has finished with war. Hmm. This again strikes me as a very close to the end of World War II <laughs> right, right, right. kind of interpretation. Yes, and I think it's important to remember that if you had looked around for a civilized nation, you know what is the most civilized nation in the 1930s in terms of art and science and technology and music? It's Germany. Yeah. Right. Their their level of development and sophistication. Uh, All of the philology that we study and read was developed in Germany. Very true. And yet it turns out that all of that was no barrier to being just totally barbaric and cruel. So Ellingham, right, when he writes this, I think it's a little bit of optimism about what World War II has actually accomplished. It was the
1: second war to end all wars. Right. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And unlike
0: a League of Nations, then there'll be the United Nations. Right. right? Man has finished with war. Yeah. Now, I don't want to, you know, be unfair to Ellingham. He's probably wise enough to realize that there'll be more wars, but I don't think he should be unfair to Virgil either. I don't think Virgil is naive enough to believe that there could ever be an end to war Mm -hmm. as long as human beings are involved. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with the the death of Turnus, the the poem ends. Man has finished with war. I'm not totally persuaded by he, that. He
1: clearly sees in that that's um, its main point was to praise Augustus, and you know at, at the very least, his bringing to the end the civil wars. Correct. At, at that time.
0: Right. Right. So both of these interpretations from the 1940s, they stand in line more or less with the the ancient description of why Virgil wrote the poem.
1: Yes. Yep.
0: But let's go on to uh, 1953. Okay. And this is from Tappa right? Yep. Uh, the Journal of the American Philological Association, written by R.A. Brooks, and the name of the article is Discolor Aura. And Jeff, could you read that one, please?
1: Yes, Brooks writes, Virgil seeks justification for Aeneas, not only by time, but in experience, as the individual who is driven by forces and looks for a personal fulfillment outside and beyond himself. The justification is never found. That failure is the central thread of the Aeneid. Right. I like that. I like that. I (laughs) mean, I don't think it's the whole story, but I I think that's often an overlooked element. Sure. Yeah.
0: And I don't know if uh, Brooks is representative of his decade or of his time. I mean, it's only been six years since Ellingham's interpretation. Mm -hmm. But this is very different than the previous two.
1: Radically different. Radically
0: so. Yeah. There is no justification, he says, that justification for a personal fulfillment outside and beyond Aeneas, that's never found, and that failure is the central thread. Right. So I think. So why do you find that persuasive? Well, oh, I
1: find I find it. Um, I mean, the way I see it is, um, it's going to sound like a cop out, but okay. I, I mean, I think that the end of the Aeneid speak to me is that yes, this is about in in, um, in Ellingham's phrase, yeah, maybe the end of the civil wars and maybe the promise of a, of a golden age to to come. But Virgil's always whispering to us or shouting at us: "Is look at the tremendous cost that it, that, that this comes with, right? Okay. And when Aeneas, uh, you know, the Dido episode I think is is the classic example of this: is that right. he always has to set aside what he really wants and what he desires uh, in service of this fate that's all kind of pulling him away. It reminded me as I was reading t- today. It reminded me of it's almost like Moses. You know, Moses isn't allowed to kind of enter the Promised Land. He's right. given a glimpse, right. but he never kind of gets the glory,
0: so to speak, of
1: leading the people That's there. That's right. And so Aeneas is kind of leading to the, you know, towards what will become Rome, but he can never really kind of taste it himself.
0: Yeah. yeah. And So
1: I think it's it's a uh, it's equal parts of those things.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, let's go on then uh, to the next one.
1: Yep. This is from um, C.S. Lewis, in the year after Brooks. In his preface to Paradise Lost, 1954. Right. So read this.
0: Yeah, so he says, quote, Virgil's achievement was to take one single national legend and treat it in such a way that we feel the vaster theme to be somehow implicit in it. He has to deal with a limited number of personages and make us feel as if national or almost cosmic issues are involved. The whole Aeneid is the story of a transition in the world order. This theme of the great transition is closely connected with the Virgilian sense of vocation In making his one legend symbolical of the destiny of Rome, he has willy-nilly symbolized the destiny of man. The explicitly religious subject for any future epic has been dictated by Virgil. It is the only further development left.
1: Hmm. So, Lewis, as you might expect, sees a bit of, um, almost like, we get that kind of pre-Christian Virgil.
0: Yes, but I mean, you have to remember, he is writing the preface to Milton's Paradise Lost. Of course, right. So he's, he's, he's writing this for a particular purpose, right? Right. Yeah. And I think if we can draw out Lewis's ideas a little bit, I think what he's saying is the Homeric epic is not about national destiny. Mm-hmm. It's about Achilles. It's about nature versus nurture. And the Odyssey is about one man's journey toward personal fulfillment, right? Yes. But the Aeneid is different. Um, Aeneas represents a whole nation. And so I think what he's saying is once Virgil has done that so successfully, the only kind of innovation in epic that remains is a religious epic. Yeah. Okay. Which is what Milton does. Right. And I think one of the reasons why I can't accept this is that we have Ovid once again. Mm -hmm. What's Mm -hmm. Ovid supposed to do in Virgil's shadow? How am I supposed to write, you know, an epic now? Right. He doesn't even attempt to deal with any of those other themes. He makes the whole thing a joke. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I can't talk about an individual. I can't talk about national destiny. I'm just going to tell a bunch of funny stories yes. in brilliant, brilliant poetry. Yes,
1: exactly. exactly.
0: That's persuasive yeah. to me. Yeah, name. yeah, yeah. No, that, um, I agree. I agree. All right, so who's next? Well, now we have to turn the corner. Okay. So now we're going into the 1960s. And now I think you're going to hear a very, very different theme. And this comes from A. Perry, the two voices of Virgil's Aeneid. This is from Arian, 1963.
1: All right. So Perry writes, we hear two distinct voices in the Aeneid, a public voice of triumph and a private voice of regret the private voice the personal emotions of a man is never allowed to motivate action but is nonetheless everywhere present sunt lacrimae rerum et mentem mortalia tangunt the pleasure felt here by aeneas in the midst of his reawakened grief is the essential paradox and the great human insight of the aeneid a poem as much about the imperium of art as the as about the imperium of rome So that, I'm with Perry.
0: So you're you're liking every one of the revisionist interpretations.
1: I don't think this is revisionist. Absolutely. No, not at all.
0: Private voice, personal voice, a private voice of regret, a public voice of triumph. How can you deny that that's in the epic? Well, because I don't think think that that's a Roman way of reading the epic.
1: I think maybe the Romans were wrong. Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't, I think maybe the... uh, That's going to make the highlight reel.
1: All right. (laughs) Um, I think certainly, you know, the Romans would have highlighted, of course, kind of the Augustine connection, but I, right. I, I don't know how anyone could hear or read that poem and not understand kind of the pull in the other direction. It seems to me so much, especially the way the epic ends. Yeah. I don't know how you could say, oh, well, you know, this is just, oh, it's just Augustine praise.
0: Well, this part I like about Perry's interpretation. Aeneas, in the midst of his reawakened grief, right? So the, the Latin line you quoted is from book one when he's looking at the architecture of Carthage right and he sees the scenes of himself, right? Mm-hmm. So he feels a kind of aesthetic pleasure When he sees the you know portrayal of Troy, but it's in the middle of his reawakened grief mm-hmm. So Perry says this is the essential paradox and the great human insight of the Aeneid Right that yeah. that pleasure and grief Can exist in an aesthetic sense. Yes. I think he's right about that. Yes. I don't think it's primarily the theme of the epic I wouldn't say it's the primarily
1: the theme of the epic, but I think it's it is it is a counterbalance to what I take to be just kind of a, um, uh, a, a too easy of interpretation. Okay.
0: All right. So what do we got next? All
1: right. Next up we have um, M. C. J. Putnam uh, from the, his book, Poetry of the India from 1965. So we're still in the 60s. And Middle of the 60s. What does Putnam have to say?
0: Okay. He says, Turnus stands for the world of Italy, that strange combination of wilderness and pastoral order. In spite of Juno's plea to Jupiter, it is this world which Aeneas destroys. The progress of empire, as Virgil puts it before the reader, is attributed only to madness, vengeance, and death.
1: Okay, now I think that's a bit revisionist.
0: I would say so. <laughs> right. Um, and I've included a little bit of information here. Now, I might be unfair here. Okay. I have been known to be unfair. What do you got? Uh, well, in 1962, right, Rachel Carson, the American biologist, came out with a very uh, popular book called Silent Spring, mm-hmm. Right, yep. which was um, an environmental work, on pollution and uh, the natural history of the sea, right? And so it was her work that led to tighter control of pesticides, including DDT, and was the birth of the environmental movement. Yes, indeed. So my thesis, perhaps unfair, is that Putnam, right, who writes his uh, comments in 1965, is living within that world and thinking those kinds of things. So that the fact that he would say, that uh, Aeneas destroys the combination of wilderness and pastoral order, mm. an environmental interpretation of the Aeneid. It's a little bit too much tied to the. The era in which it emerged—I would agree—for me to find plausible,
1: I agree, and I think even—I think even to broaden that out, I think that you know he's writing this, 1965, so we're starting to see kind of the beginnings of kind of post-colonial studies, That's right? Correct. We see we're kind of the the, the um, you know after World War One, World War Two, kind of the the full breakup of what was the British Empire, right? And now it's kind of questions about American imperialism. Right. So you've got in, the, the in
0: Soviets, and you've got the Americans. And Vietnam is starting to rage. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. So, so it seems maybe a little too um, too much of an anachronistic read right. of what Virgil intended or, you know, what the Romans would have understood.
1: I, I, I the Romans who are
0: wrong, as we know, but uh, what they would have understood when they read it. Yes. Okay, so the last one we have here is from uh, Steele Commager. I wish I, I, I wish my parents had named Steele. <laughs> what a name. Yeah, it's better than copper, probably. <laughs> yes, right. uh, a collection of essays, 1966. Right, so Commager writes... In the myth of a
1: faulted past, destruction and rebirth under a semi-divine leader, Virgil's generation could find a parable for its own experience and for its hopes as well. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right on. I mean, there's not a lot here to to, to, to work with. But that's kind of a a broad summary of kind of that encapsulates a lot of different interpretations. I think that's fine.
0: Okay. Yeah. Who wrote uh Is it the Who talking about my generation? Yeah. Is that the Who? When, mm-hmm. when did that come out? sixty. 60- Four? Okay.
1: Yeah. Something like that. Yeah.
0: So Virgil's writing for his generation, right? A faulted past, destruction, rebirth under a semi-divine leader. Yeah. Do you think that's the way that the Romans of Virgil's time saw Roman history? As? Maybe the last couple of generations of the, the terrible civil wars. I would buy that.
1: Yeah. You find it. Uh, you find it kind of a little too... Unromany, a little too on the
0: nose. On, okay,
1: all right, all right, okay.
0: He didn't. Uh, are we to think that Virgil wrote only for his immediate predecessors? Is it, did I say predecessors? Excuse me, successors. I think he believed and intended to write something for the ages. I think so too. To rival Homer, right. So I think any interpretation that too neatly fits his own time um, is too neat. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Well, that kind of wraps up some of the interpretations. By the way, if any of you are uh, Latin or myth teachers out there and you would find this material that we have just shared helpful, this collection of quotes, Mm -hmm. I know it only goes up through 1966 and interpretation has proceeded since then. I don't know if it's improved, but if you would like this, I'll be happy to share it with you. Uh, Contact Jeff or me and I'll I'll send you this document if you would find it helpful in your own teaching. Sounds good. So we have um, a little bit more uh, Virgil's Nocleban. Yeah. Right. Conte provides us here, jean Biagio Conte, uh, Latin Literature and Interpretation, some help. He says that Virgil's Nachleben, his afterlife is Western literature itself. All of it. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly.
1: Okay, that's that's high praise. That's, that's bold. Praise.
0: Yeah, it is. But I would say it's indisputable. If one has not read and understood, I'm gonna make a absolutist claim, read and understood the Aeneid, it's difficult to interact or impossible to interact responsibly with uh, any aspect of Western literature.
1: Right, uh, in the same way, even dialing back, I think that if, to fully understand the Aeneid, you have to go back to Homer, right? Correct. So, you know, Homer is the is the first pillar, and, and maybe you know Virgil is the second. It's an infinite regress. On which all of Western literature stands. That's yeah. right.
0: So Conte tells us that Virgil was a school author by 25 BC. When does he die? He dies in 19. Okay. Yep, and he is uh, buried in Naples. Okay. He died in Brundisium. Uh, he was about to sail for Greece, and That's he was right. brought back to Naples. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had published the Eclogues in thirty-nine. He had published the Georgics in twenty-nine, and even before the Aeneid was published, he was being used as a text in the schools. That's
1: incredible. Yeah.
0: So n- nothing that I have been written is used as a text in schools. No, I
1: don't believe that. Oh, right. dude, yeah.
0: <laughs> Nor that I ever will write. You know. And I'm I'm just saying this is a a, a tremendously significant accomplishment, right? Un- unparalleled, right? right. And uh, you want to read that Conte quote there from line 285? Yeah. So he's,
1: uh, he says, his works are quoted so often in antiquity that even if they had been lost, they could still be reconstructed in large measure. Right. That, I mean, that's that um, hyperbole there? or, do, or No, that, it's no, true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah,
0: And Conte also mentions, and we talked about this a little bit when um, Dirges for Dead Dido, I think was the episode, yeah. where Augustus, I'm sorry, Augustine is talking about his interaction with uh, the Aeneid. Right. Uh, unparalleled influence in Christian antiquity. Conte says that uh, Saint Jerome had most of the Aeneid memorized.
1: Wow. Which is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. And, he, and Virgil survives really like unlike any other author as uh, as we get into kind of the Christian era as one of these kind of sainted pagans. That's right? right. And so he survives very well. Um, um, we haven't taught. We haven't done an episode on Eclogue Four, have we? we not. You know.
0: No. Not devoted to Eclogue Four. We've mentioned it here and there. But the, the Eclogue, so-called messianic Eclogue,
1: right, where it's it has been read that Virgil's kind of predicting the birth
0: of. of yes, uh, I think of, we Christ. should do an episode on it because I've studied it uh, somewhat, and it is fascinating. It is fascinating. Of course, we both know that in the Sistine Chapel, the Cumaean Sibyl mm-hmm. is painted up there on the wall, right next to the prophet uh, Isaiah and uh, the other prophets, Jeremiah.
1: And she is ripped. Her she bi- has her biceps. It's, it's, it's intimidating. That's
0: right. <laughs> because she's predicting the human Sibyl is predicting uh, the birth of Christ, yes. according to uh, medieval understanding. Exactly. According to medieval legend, uh, the Apostle Paul, when he landed at Naples, remember he's sailing mm-hmm. there. He landed and he took the Via Appia north toward Rome, mm-hmm. went through Formiae, where we've both been. That's right. Uh, it tells us that Paul went to the tomb of Virgil and wept because he, Paul, had been born too late. To convert Virgil to the Christian faith. Ah. Now, almost certainly a ridiculous and made up story. But yeah. But it captures, I think, brilliantly just how influential Virgil was on uh, Christian thinkers. Right. Throughout, you know, the the history of the Christian faith. Right.
1: I think unlike any other pre-Christian or Greek or Roman author.
0: Right. Yeah. There's no Dante, obviously, without Virgil.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Yep. Yeah. What about your experience with the Aeneid? Jeff, what was your first encounter? Do you remember what it was like? When was it? And, and how did you respond?
1: I remember first reading a, a translation of the Aeneid in, in, in college as an undergrad. Did, did not encounter it. I don't know if I, if I even knew it existed um, before I came to, uh, to, to college. And so I read it in translation in a classical literature and translation class. And I remember loving it. Right. I remember loving. I be, I remember being kind of puzzled by kind of the initial blandness of Aeneas' Aeneas's character, as we've talked about right. in this. But
0: that's never gone away, has it? it,
1: it no, that it has not gone away. But the it was always. I mean, the ending of the epic, which we've just been talking about, that has always haunted me. And yeah. Will continue to haunt me. Yeah. I find it so interesting in the way, in the number of ways, it directions it pulls you.
0: Mm. Yeah. How about you? Yes, for me, it was as an undergrad too at uh, Calvin College at the time, mm-hmm. uh, now University, where we were both. Um, students, mm-hmm. you know that institution which shall be named, <laughs> and um, it was in a um, it was in a Latin two class, Latin three class uh, taught by Ken Bratt. Mm-hmm. And I was using the Clyde Far version with yes. the purple cover. Oh yeah, many people know that. I'm sure I had a hard hard cover. Still got mine. Yep, books one through six were included in there, and you know we started reading Armo Rum Quaenau and so forth. And I thought, wow, this is really incredible. This is I, I where has this been all my life? Yeah. Right, this is shocking. You know, I was only. 19 or 20 at the time, so I didn't have a lot of life, but I was just astounded, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I was never able to take a, um, a Virgil course in grad school, uh, but I, I made it a goal to finally read the whole of it in Latin, and it took me several years, and sometimes fits and starts um, 10 lines at a time or so, but I made it through, and uh, it has been profoundly influential on my thinking and um, and on my imagination as well. It's It's very... Uh, fertile for the imagination yeah the, the images the descriptions the way that you said in one of our previous episodes very memorably that uh, Virgil is better than Homer in some ways in how he describes uh, nature
1: I stand by that yeah I, I, I do there's just, yeah something about it that um uh, I mean of course the Latin itself and I think one of the Lombardo strengths in his yes. translation he can he brings it out he does well. yeah.
0: absolutely yeah so this last little bit here before we wrap it up yeah um is uh, the question of Virgilian English,
1: hmm. right?
0: Okay. So these are the first 10 lines or so of uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. Do you ever take a class on Milton, or study any Milton? I never did, hmm.
1: I never did. Nope.
0: So as an undergrad, I, I, um, I studied a little bit of Milton with, um, I think it's Ed Erickson. Yeah, a Former Calvin yeah, prof. yeah, I remember him. Yeah, he's now uh, passed on to glory. Um, but he was a great, a great lover of Milton, and uh, tried to impart to me that same kind of admiration never took really no (laughs) no milton leaves me cold okay so i can recognize the brilliance of his poetry but it's not interesting to me in the same way that um the aeneid is gotcha but here are some english exameters all right so i thought we should just read a few and people can see you know does it have appeal of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe With loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us, and regain the blissful seat, sing, heavenly muse, that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd, who first taught the chosen seed, in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos, or of Zion hill, delight thee more, and Siloah's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God. I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song, that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Ionian mount. Well, it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. One
0: giant sentence. One giant
1: sentence. But he's i mean—he's kind of following the epic tradition of not invoking the muses. That's right. But wanting his poem blessed by God.
0: Yes. Yeah. The heavenly muse is the Holy Spirit. Yes. And it's packed with um, literary allusions. So I guess I compare it to Ovid, right? Ovid's showing off his mythological knowledge, but Ovid's funny. Milton Milton not funny Milton showing off his mythological knowledge and scriptural knowledge but not appealing to me in the same way I can understand that doesn't have the same kind of wit yeah and now we're going to get a lot of hate mail uh, from uh, all those Milton lovers, all those, those Miltonites.
1: Hey, bring it on! That's right. I mean, I would love to hear if our listeners are, are Milton lovers. What do you love about it? That's fair right.
0: Maybe we'll devote an episode to it sometime,
1: or at the very least, a shout out. I think it would be perfect to
0: John Milton,
1: but well, not to shout to John Milton, but to talking about a listener's yeah. take on Milton. I that
0: would be good. I'd like to hear that. Kind yeah. of the counter argument. Yes. Right. Yeah. Something like uh, you know, you guys at the end of episode 120, you kind of were not fair to Milton, and here's why.
1: Here's right, you rubes, you philistines, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs>
0: Right. We'd love to hear it, your bumpkins, you hayseeds. Exactly. All right.
1: All right. Let's hey, wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Dave, uh, before we go, tell us a little bit about the Moss
0: Method, about LLPSI. What you got going on? I'd love to do that. So we're still teaching Greek, still teaching Latin. Uh, for those who want to study Greek, I can take you from neophyte. To erudite. That's correct. Go to mossmethod.com. Check out my program, 40 videos in module one, 40 lessons, 6 quizzes to exams. You can start with little or no knowledge of Greek and come to a pretty high level of competency in just one module, plus thousands of free lessons, uh, almost 2,000 now, online at my YouTube page. That's uh, YouTube youtube.com. If you want to study Latin, I'll be brief. Go to latinperdm.com. I have a course that's built on Hans Orberg's Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata uh, features 33 classroom sessions, plus about 20 some office hours that are recorded. And uh, really there's no reason not to study Greek or Latin at this point.
1: <laughs> Sounds great. So I mentioned the websites once again for both of those. Yes, episodes. it's
0: mossmethod.com mm-hmm. and latinperdm.com. Just click around on there. You'll find it. there's some awkward videos of me trying to appeal to the camera and so forth. But the programs themselves, I think, once again, they may not be the best, but they are, I'm sure, the best value, the combination of expertise and uh, a, an affordable cost. Please. so Yes.
1: Uh, track those down. All, All right, right. Before we go, uh, thanks as always to Mishka, our intrepid engineer. I'm always amazed about her fast turnaround time.
0: And the quality yeah. of the work she yep. produces, too. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So
1: thanks, Mishka. Scott Vinzen, Ken Tamplin. These are the guys behind the the uh, the great music that you right. hear throughout the little, episode. It's a little
0: bluesy. It's a little rock. Right. Got the bumper music. That's really nice but for it's the It's balancing kind of civilization and savagery with yes, just his there tone. there you go. Yes. Right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs>
1: So, Dave, if people want to get in touch with us, what should they do? Right. They should send emails to jeff at ad
0: nauseum.com, Don't forget the V. Or to Dave at Dave at ad nauseum.com. Also, don't forget the V. You can pick up some uh, summer merchandise if you'd like. A shirt that says "Qui No kent, kent This Erasmian tag, Pathemata Mathemata.
1: So, we're getting into t-shirt weather here in
0: Michigan. So, oh, that yeah. means it's got
1: to be t-shirt in weather in most places. That's right. Yeah. That's right. right.
0: And uh, it's a good deal. Get a hat. Get some other paraphernalia. Mm-hmm. Jeff, we haven't really decided what we're doing next week.
1: Uh, well, no, we've done you know, thirty Aeneid episodes. We're done with the Aeneid. I don't know I don't, what should are we, we take, gonna do. Should we take a break for a year? <laughs> it feels it feels like that, like uh, a break is necessary, but we can't take a break. No, we gotta no. keep
0: going. So we got a number of different things we can cover, including yep. some very interesting guests coming up. Yes. Um, in not too long. See, this has been kind of the downside of spending so much time on the Aeneid is. Not time for guests. Right. It's been a while since we've done a, That's a, a right. good interview. So,
1: But we got one coming up. And we I'm, do. I'm very excited about yes, it. Yes, should
0: be excellent.
1: So we're we'll just going kind to of keep the audience in suspense yeah, about let's what, do that. what's on
0: tap for next week. They, they don't have to, you know, they're not on a need to know basis.
1: Exactly right. So, and I believe, Dave, you have our gustatory parting shot today?
0: Yes, I do. So this is a classic. Uh, this is from Brian Regan. Yes. And I think I actually heard this quote. You, you <laughs> queued this up for me, but yeah. I heard this quote more than a decade ago. Is that right? Yeah, and it's very funny, (laughs) but I don't know if I can do it justice. Really? He's got a fantastic delivery, this guy. I
1: mean, there's all the whole visual element to it. Oh yeah. Do the best you can. All right, all right,
0: here we go. So my doctor told me to watch what I'm eating to read food labels. I'm in the store reading the Fig Newton's label. I've always liked Fig Newton's. I'm reading the label to make sure everything's fine. Fat, content, calories. I look at the serving size, two cookies. Who eats two cookies? I eat fig newtons by the sleeve. Two <laughs> sleeves is a serving size. I open them both and eat them like a tree chipper. Fig newton shavings coming off the side.
1: <laughs> well done. Well done.
0: Thanks.